2: Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com.
3: Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Bedient, one of your hosts for Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my sparkling, shiny, stellar, uh, sizzling hot girls, um, otherwise known as Dr. Abby Eblin from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. I do have a sparkly necklace on today, I will say. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center.
2: Hey, y'all doing good?
3: Doing great. You're good. And we are joined by the stunningly brilliant Dr. Florencia Halperin, who is the chief medical officer at Form Health. And so we are going to talk to her in just a minute in detail about what she does day in and day out, which is to help people lose weight in a medically safe and supervised manner. And so we're going to get into all of those details in a minute because that is always a hot topic in January. Yes, the other eleven months too, Carrie. <laughs> Fair enough, as I've been trying to lose weight, I'm like, yeah, this is this consumes many of my daylight waking hours. But you had mentioned that you grew up in Argentina before coming here, and as most of us have been, you know, grounded for the last two years, any thought of travel is just. It tickles the brain. And so Amazing. <laughs> uh, it sounds, it sounds stellar. So tell us about glo- growing up in Argentina and how you got here and all of the things. Great. Well, thank you,
0: first of all, so much for having me. This is so much fun and I'm excited to talk to you about what I do. But yes, I was born in Argentina and I came to the US actually when I was in fourth grade, so a long time ago. But my name does always stand out to people. And (laughs) I like to tell people that Whereas here, it's such an uncommon name. People don't know how to pronounce it. They've generally never heard it before. In Argentina, it's such a common name that when you go to tourist shops and everything, all the mugs, all the plaques, everything has Florencia on it. It's a very <laughs> common name, especially in, in my age group. And we came to the U.S. because my father is a physician and he was brought here to do a sabbatical. So we moved to Boston, Massachusetts, Brooklyn, Massachusetts, and then we ended up staying. But we do go back every year and I have kids. I take them back to see all the relatives. And the last time that I was in Argentina was in February of 2020. You guys are speaking about, you know, the desire to travel. I totally share that. I think if it had been one week later, we wouldn't have been able to go because we got back and then everything shut down.
2: I have a question for you. So I'm currently trying to achieve my Lithuanian U.S. dual citizenship um, because of my grandparents and people, an opportunity I have through them. I'm just curious, like, did you end up becoming a U.S. citizen? Do you how is that for you?
0: Yes. Becoming a U.S. citizen was an amazing experience. My family did it together. So my parents kind of hired a lawyer and my dad actually had a lot of scientific accomplishments. So we were able to become citizens through this special category, but we waited a long time. So I was uh, in, I think I was already like graduated from college. Oh, wow. And I had to go and take the test. I had to study all the questions and take the test. I don't know if you, any of you have ever done it, but what was amazing was the four of us and my family did it, you know, at the same time. And the four people who did the exam on us, none of them were originally born in the U.S. Like you you could tell by the way that they, you know, looked and spoke that they had all been naturalizing. So that was like this wonderful thing, like only in the U.S. do you go for like citizenship, and like (laughs) no one who's giving it to you was in
1: here. And the sad thing, probably they knew a lot more about American history, probably than if you ask us right now, dates and times that that we probably know. And I think that's so cool that you're from Argentina. When I trained in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the people that I trained with was a physician by the name of Fernando Ackerman. He's actually a reproductive endocrinologist in Miami. And, you know, again, kind of going back to kind of my ignorance about just world geography, you know, I had no idea how far away Argentina is. I mean, it's a long flight from like, like Miami, I think is where he would usually fly from. So tell us, tell me a little bit about the geography of Argentina. And, and, you know, if I had to go to Argentina, what is the spot I have to go see if I'm going there?
2: You have to go eat steak, right? You have to eat steak. That's right. That's what I know about Argentina. (laughs) (laughs) That's right into
0: our next topic. Um, um, Yeah. I mean, Argentina is actually an amazing country. It's the eighth largest country in the world, I believe. And so it has a very diverse geography. I recently reviewed this because I had to give a presentation at my daughter's third grade class.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we'll know as much as your daughter's
0: third grade class did by the end of this, right? (laughs) That's right. So it has actually like Patagonia, which is a very full land of um, a lot of lakes and glaciers. And then it has the Pampas, which are very flat, where all the horses and the cows that make the amazing beef grow. And then a really famous landmark is Iguazu Falls on the border with Brazil, which are just this very, very amazing natural wonder and have this UNESCO designation for, you know, being one of the most beautiful places in the world. So the land to tour is very beautiful. And then Buenos Aires, which is the capital city, which is where I'm from, is a very European city. At the architecture is beautiful. People eat dinner at 10 p.m. So <laughs> wonderful nightlife and um, a real cafe culture. So people go to have un cafecito in the, on the sidewalks. It's a very, really, really fun cosmopolitan city, at least It used to be, obviously now things are different all over the world, but I highly recommend a trip to Argentina whenever it is possible because you can make an itinerary that really takes you from like a super fun cosmopolitan European style city to these amazing, you know, lands with glaciers and lakes where you can put on some special shoes and walk on the glaciers. Oh, wow. You know, really cool wine country. It's just a very rich and beautiful country.
2: I would have never even thought of glaciers. Yes,
0: Perito Moreno is a very famous glacier. It's really beautiful and you can walk on it, which is, you know, this amazing experience. I actually have never done that, but many of the people who came to my wedding, we were married in Argentina and so we had, you know, a lot of international guests and many people made a stop there and said it was one of the most you know, awesome experiences they've ever had. So
1: cool. Let's go. Let's do
3: a show on the road and go to Argentina. sounds fun. (laughs) Okay. Well, Susan, do you have a question for the day?
2: I do. All right. Hello. Thank you for the great podcast. It's really helped me along my journey. I'm turning 39 next week and I've been trying to conceive for about three years. My husband's also 39. They tried naturally for a year and then started fertility treatments on HSG. Right tube was open, left was is possibly open, question mark. Right antral follicle count was greater than 20, left was 17. Uterus was arcuate and progesterone level was 6.7 at the time of HSG. Doctors suspected PCOS and possibly endometriosis. She was started on letrozole, had a good response each month, um, had two mature follicles, progesterone level would go up to 20. Uterine lining was on the thinner side, but improved with letrozole. And consistently improved. They did five months of just letrozole, then had laparoscopy, which confirmed mild endo with a small polyp, which was removed. Wasn't able to do letrozole after surgery because of timing, but then the next cycle had two mature follicles, but unfortunately no pregnancy. They don't know about the exact numbers of the semen analysis, but it came back normal, but had a high white blood cell count. He doesn't have any pelvic pain. So they said it was up to debate whether the high white blood cell count affects pregnancy or not. At this point, they're going to do one more cycle, just letrozole, and then moving on to an IUI. They're both overweight, but otherwise healthy. What would our recommendation be at this point? If there was anything else to do or anything else they should ask the doctor. And what are your opinions on the white blood cell count? Nobody can answer the, why aren't we getting pregnant if everything is working question, but insights or thoughts on those would be appreciated. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer the question.
1: So the million dollar question always is why are we not getting pregnant everything's working correctly and and that is a million dollar question because we probably can't answer that either there's so many things that have to happen for an egg and a sperm to get together that we may not figure that out but I think what really kind of stands out to me kind of the glaring thing here is you're 39 and you've been trying at least 6 or 7 months from what i could tell and you're doing things that give you maybe a 5% chance of success in a given month and you know not to stress you out any more than you probably already are but you know, I think we're all sitting here going, "You need to get going. You need to do something more aggressive." I, you know, I think if you lined up five reproductive endocrinologists and you've got three right here, so we'll see what everybody says. I think most everybody would say, "You're 39. You've been you tried three years before you even started, or maybe a year. I can't remember how how long you tried before you started fertility treatment. But you've you've been trying for a long time." It's time to do something pretty bold. And I would my biggest vote would be you got to move to IVF sooner rather than later because it's the quickest route to pregnancy and it's most successful. And I I would just urge you stop wasting time. Just do something that's going to get you pregnant sooner rather than later.
3: I mean, I would argue we've got a fair number of reasons of why you could not be getting pregnant between being 39 years old. Your antral follicle count is 37, which at 39 is really high and very suggestive of PCOS or potential some sort of ovulatory dysfunction. You've got a questionable tube that's not open and you've got a diagnosis of mild endometriosis. And you mentioned that you were overweight and that can kind of play back into the PCOS. Like, and a sperm issue too, maybe. And potential sperm issue, like usually the elevated white blood cell count, Um, at least a couple of studies that I pulled, this was now maybe two years ago, but they didn't really show any impairment, but certainly we don't know everything. And so that could be a part of the reason. Like, I think there's several potential reasons going on here and would kind of agree with Abby in it's time to do something bold. And very fortunately for you, like I would kill for an egg count of 37 in, in some of my 30 year olds, much less a 39 year old. Like you're looking in a good spot, like take it and run. What do you think, Susan?
2: I concur wholeheartedly. (laughs) If you had just one of those four issues, I think we'd all still say IVF. You know, a lot of what we see in fertility isn't that we have one thing that causes a slam bang. This is absolutely what's preventing you because realistically, lots of people get pregnant when they have one barrier. But when you have this barrier added onto this barrier, added onto this barrier, added onto this barrier, barrier, that's when we're like, you've tried the conservative things and doing the conservative things was not a wrong thing. But I think keep on doing the conservative things. Age will eventually outrank every single thing. And at 39, I mean, I don't think any of us sit there with patients who are 39 and start breaking a sweat too much, but you start giving me 41, 42, 43, 44. Ooh, like sticky armpits. I mean, seriously.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's time to get going before the decision's actually made for you. And and like, kind of like Susan implied, eventually that's going to be made for you, whether you make it or not, if you, you know, kind of continue to to move forward with kind of not such aggressive therapies.
3: Absolutely. All right. So let's move on to talking about all of Florencia's fabulous accomplishments and background. And so you are the the CMO of Form Health and tell us a little bit about what Form Health does and where it came from. Yes,
0: great. So I have been with Form Health for about two years. It's been in existence for about two and a half years, and it is a company that delivers a medical obesity management program, and it's completely delivered through telehealth. We are now seeing patients in many states, somewhere between 20 and 30 states, and quickly opening up more states with the goal to be live in all states early in 2022, and I can tell you kind of more about what we do specifically, but I'll tell you that the way that I came to Form Health is that I'm from Boston. After Argentina, I moved to Boston. I already covered that part, and I trained as an endocrinologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and was really focused on diabetes for the early part of my career, but had the opportunity to do research on weight loss through bariatric surgery and through intensive medical management programs and the comparison between the two for people who have obesity and diabetes. And when I was doing those studies, I was actually following people through weight loss journeys. And it completely changed the trajectory of my career because I felt like nothing that I had done until that point had ever impacted people's lives as much as significant weight loss does. And so thinking about Obesity as a medical issue, which we should talk more about, and thinking about losing weight as a way to improve health became kind of my passion and and my mission. And I had the opportunity to found a center for weight management and metabolic surgery. That's what we called it at Brigham and Women's. Mouthful. Now, yeah, it was a mouthful. I did that for about eight years, and then one of my patients actually introduced me to Evan Richardson, who's the founder of Form Health, and who had this idea. And who ended up recruiting me to kind of build it with him and develop the medical program. I
2: would have to say like the timing of this is like one of those like godsend moments because we're sitting here in December of 2021, just because this podcast will be hopefully listened to for ages and this telemedicine based clinic was formed before the outbreak of COVID of when telemedicine really took its hold on the world.
0: That's right. It's really crazy. I started at Form Health on December 9th of 2019, and I don't think i heard (laughs) of the coronavirus, you know, 19, maybe a little bit that something funky was going on in China. Some of my colleagues from the hospital are like, wow, Florencia, like how did you go to telehealth like three months before the world shut down? And I mean, it was really a
3: a complete coincidence. So when you say obesity as a medical problem, I think that's what a lot of us think of it as because it impacts all of the other aspects of medicine that we do. And because it impacts so many other Aspects of medicine that people find themselves in trouble with, with the diabetes and the high blood pressure and all the things that go around to it. So, when you say you know treating it as a medical condition, how do you how do you guys approach that? Like, what does your program do, and how do you help patients in a way that's maybe a little bit different than going to the most recent you know women's magazine and looking at the quiz of how you lose the next five pounds?
0: Yes. Yeah, so, great question. You know, I think that in general. The medical community is starting to really see obesity as a chronic medical condition, but that even is still very recent. Obesity was only deemed officially as a disease in 2013, so within the last decade. It has long been considered, and I think still is considered in many cases just a matter of the person just doesn't move enough. They choose to eat unhealthy things and it's really the person's fault and the person's decisions. So it's really, really important that our philosophy at the core of everything that we do is the understanding of this is a process that's really determined by biology and that people who have obesity have a different biology than people who don't. And this is really a paradigm shift and we're not quite there with everybody understanding this. And I know that because I give a lot of talks to physicians and other healthcare professionals where I still, you know, get questions and comments that, and I hear from patients that they get questions and comments that really reveal that many people are still stuck with the mentality that this is your choice and your fault. And that is not true because I won't, I won't give a whole physiology lecture. I promise. Well, and I have
1: a physiology question. Maybe this is getting too far in the weeds, but you really touched upon something because I read something probably two or three years ago that kind of changed my way of thinking too, because kind of like you said, you know, you kind of think calories in, calories out. You eat too many calories, you gain weight, you delete calories, you lose weight. And I read something about the microbiome. Of course, I know that's sort of the thing for everybody now that you know, there's certain germs that live in your lungs all the time. There's certain germs that live in your GI tract. There's certain germs that live in your respiratory system. And I really read, and maybe you can speak a little bit to this about that the microbiome, in other words, the germs that live in the bowels of people who are heavier may metabolize food differently. And maybe those patients are more efficient at absorbing calories than somebody else who's thin. And I I thought that was such a fascinating way to think about
0: it. That's right. So let me say a few words about that, but just to be sort of even a little bit broader about it, I was thinking when Susan was saying how, when you were answering the question, how infertility can be so many different things kind of stacked up, it's similar with what regulates body weight. It's a lot of different biological factors. And if you have kind of multiple hits, you're much more likely in your life to have obesity. So one of those is the microbiome. So we know that if we take the microbiome of mice, who have obesity, and we put it into these mice that have are kind of denuded, they will gain weight. And actually, fetal transplantation is one of the things that's under study as a treatment for obesity. Hmm. But it's not the only thing. One of the main things is that our brains and our endocrine system regulate our weight. So Everybody knows that our body's really good at defending our temperature, right? So it's amazing that you can be outdoors in the cold New England weather like I am, or in the sunny parts of the country, like maybe where you guys are, <laughs> body stays at the t- same temperature, or you go indoors where it's we're heating it to 80 degrees, and then outdoors where it's you know 30 degrees, and our body's able to do so many different things to keep the temperature the same. Well, I think that's a good parallel to how the body regulates weight. The body thinks a certain weight is the right weight for this body and it can increase hunger hormones. It can increase or decrease metabolism. There are all these different things that it can do to get the person to act in a certain way to defend that weight and keep that weight there. And so there are a lot of hormones, a lot of neurotransmitters and all of these pathways have been worked out, you know, to some extent. And so we know that the body's doing a lot of different things and the microbiome plays a role. And then by the way, the environment plays a huge role because what really this is about is an interaction between the biology that you have and the environment that you live in.
2: So a little bit kind of along that lines, and it's one of those kind of chicken or the egg type of thing, you know, we're dealing with women who want to carry a pregnancy. And so we would like their bodies to be in the best condition to reduce risks, not only to them, but also risks to the baby. So, you know, when people are overweight or obese, we know that there are definitely increased risk of pregnancy complications, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, blood pressure issues in pregnancy preterm delivery, complicated C-sections, all those things. But now, you know, when I started my training, those were the things we worried about. And then as we've learned, we're even worried about imprinting. That's right. Do you want to talk a little bit about what imprinting is and, and how this can affect people? Yes.
0: You guys are asking so many great questions and I definitely don't want to forget to kind of talk about what we actually do. So one of the things that we do is we love to work with women who want to become pregnant to help them get healthier, lose weight and get healthier because of all of these connections that we understand exactly as you reviewed about how maternal obesity or overweight impacts the health of the pregnancy, of the mom, and then also eventually of the baby. And basically what we think is that the environment that, this is the imprinting question, the environment that the fetus develops in can affect its long-term health. We know that that's true from a lot of epidemiological evidence. And so things like metabolic disease, cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, things like that seem to be more common when the baby developed inside a mom who had obesity. And that is in part because of the genes that they inherit from the parents, but also because of their environment and imprinting is kind of like how the environment affects it doesn't change the genetic code, but it changes how things are expressed and sort of altered during the development process and and really life um, without changing the genetic code.
1: So, Florencia, tell us how if somebody's listening to this and they're like, "Gosh, this sounds great." How would they get in touch with you? How they how would they initiate this? And would they need a physician to do this, or could they do this on their own?
0: So, we work with patients who find us on their own, and I want to tell you a little bit about actually what we do with you know with them. But we also are. Are building a really wonderful referral network and partnerships across the country with fertility centers like all of yours, because we want to be a place where when women are told, look, You can't have this procedure because your weight is too high. Well, who's going to help them to achieve that? That's what we're there for. You guys are there to help them become pregnant, but generally the kind of time and expertise to really help them along the weight loss journey is not what your centers are about. But we we know that many people are just sort of turned away to do it on their own. So we want to be there. And it's been working out really, really wonderfully to have these Kind of relationships with people who refer their patients to us, so then we can refer them back when they've met their weight goals to have the treatment and to get pregnant. And we've had many pregnancies, which is like the best news ever at Form Health. Is when <laughs> pregnant. So what we do is we pair everybody with a physician and a dietitian, and all of our physicians are board certified and in general have training and specialization in obesity. So there's American Board of Obesity Medicine, which gives a certification that our physicians have. And same with our dietitians, they have specialty training and management of obesity. Now the patients, all of their care happens through an app. So when they join their, our program, they download this app, And they can do the visits on Zoom with their care team. They can also text with the care team between visits. So they have very intensive support. And we have a whole education program that they can review little nuggets on their app and they can track their weight and their blood pressure. So everything happens through their app. So convenient that sometimes people do their visits on their lunch break or even in the car, not driving, but, you know, because they can just make it work for them. So the first part of the journey is an initial evaluation with the physician. And we review all of the history. Most women who have obesity, who are trying to lose weight, including to get pregnant, have tried this before. So we really talk to them about like, what has this journey been like for you until now? What has worked? What hasn't worked? We get a lot of really useful information from that then we really look at their whole medical history because things like PCOS that you mentioned, there may be many reasons why they're having difficulty losing weight. Sometimes there are also undiagnosed conditions that are a consequence of their weight. For example, sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is very common in women with overweight and obesity and men, and it can really interfere with Life with progress. And it's a big risk for, for example, cardiovascular disease. If you're not sleeping, if you're not getting good rest and you're really tired, it's very hard to exercise and make healthy food choices and all of that. So we're looking for chronic medical conditions related to weight. Could be that it's because of their weight, it could be that it's affecting how their ability to lose weight, et cetera. So we we do a very comprehensive evaluation. We also do labs, and then we put together a program for the individual. And that history of kind of where they've been and what's working, what hasn't is really important, but also understanding their physiology. So women with PCOS, for example, have insulin resistance. So we may try to target treatments that are specifically good for people with insulin resistance. So we always address kind of four components, nutrition, physical activity, mindset and behavior change, and then medications. So for nutrition, we have to help people eat healthier. So not just quantity, but quality of food is really important. And someone I think mentioned this before, it's so important to help them develop a lifestyle that works for them. Especially when women are trying to get pregnant, we are not trying to put them on some fast, quick diet that they will then stop doing, you know, the minute they get pregnant and then gain tons of weight during the pregnancy. That is not good either. What we're really trying to find with them is what are the things that they can do? What are the changes that we can make? We do a lot of education and we do a lot of trial and error. Like, does this work? Do you lose weight? Does this work? Do you lose weight? If you don't, or if you do, and then you stop, then we kind of pivot and we rethink it. But a very critical thing really quickly is that all of the tools that we use, all of the dietary strategies, for example, are evidence-based, So we use the things that have been tested in scientific studies and have been shown to work. And we don't use the many, many, many things that are out there that have never been shown to work.
3: So- What's a typical timeline? Because of course, one of the million dollar questions is, well, how fast can I do this? Because especially for patients on their fertility journey, it's a, how fast can I do this? Because time is not any of our friends. I mean, what's a reasonable amount of weight loss that's okay. That's not a crazy amount. That's not, you know, so slow as you never see change, but not so rapid that you're worried about doing damage in the process. Right. Well,
0: timeline is very difficult in women who are seeking pregnancy at a certain age, not you know, not everybody, but that is one of the things that we deal with and sometimes we have to make difficult decisions and often we involve also the fertility care treatment team and talk back and forth about the right decision for the individual. In general, the obesity society and other societies that make guidelines, you know, group of experts that get together and say, what should be expected say that people should lose five to 10% of their starting weight in the first three to six months. Oh, that's not much. Right. It can feel very slow. However, that is the range at which you see a lot of metabolic benefits. So women with PCOS start to get regular cycles when they lose that much weight. Women with prediabetes have a tremendous decrease in the risk of getting diabetes in that number. If you have things like knee pain and osteoarthritis, you start to see a lot of walking benefits at that number. So it's very meaningful, even if someone feels like they have much more weight to lose than that. The reality is we often can do better than that, but that is kind of the established goal and and our patients lose kind of at least that much, if not more, but it's also very individual. We have some people who just really are able with the right tools to do it and do it more quickly. And we have other people probably because of the differences in the biology, just like as you said, for infertility, it's different biology that it's much more difficult. So we see a big range.
2: So you had mentioned that, you know, the advice that you give to patients, which I mean, this is kind of an obvious thing, but you give them evidence-based advice. So not just like the fad diet of the week. Can you give us some insight as this is completely outside of our wheelhouse, you know, what are some of the things that actually do work and what are some of the things that people think work, but that doesn't?
0: Yes. So the main category of things not to do, and then I'll talk about the things that you should do are buying supplements. So there's a huge industry on weight loss supplements and their supplements are not medications. They're not prescribed by a physician. They don't require a prescription. You can buy them over the counter. They are not under the same FDA regulations and they can make claims about weight loss, which are just completely unfounded and they can actually do harm. And every year there are deaths and there are hospitalizations for people who bought supplements thinking they could get help losing weight, and then they got really sick. So that is the main thing not to do. And many weight loss programs out there that this is what they do. They kind of add in supplements that don't work and can be dangerous. So in terms of what you should do, one of the main things is eating healthier quality of food. The calories in, calories out is true to some extent. Like if you just put in a lot more calories into the system, the system will store them and you will gain weight. But what we've learned so much, science has taught us so much about how highly processed foods, so white flour, white sugar, you know, everything that I like to say is made in a factory, not the things that come from nature, things that are made in a factory send very powerful signals to our brain to want more and so all of the things that come in you know baggies and have lots of sugar and lots of (laughs) things that taste
1: really good that
0: we like (laughs) sometimes it's really good but things from nature can also taste really good yes no that's true i agree um so those things set you up to want more and set you up to eat more on a daily basis and so shifting towards a healthier diet so instead of a snack coming in a baggie you can think about some nuts and an apple And we have to make things practical. So we work a lot with people to be able to get them to make those changes. Yes.
1: So, Florencia, for somebody like me who doesn't have your knowledge base, what I usually tell patients, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I usually say, you know, fiber is your friend because you want to keep your insulin constant. So I usually say, you know, increase fruit intake, apples, because they have a lot of fiber. The more fiber you have in your diet, the fuller you feel. And I also go on to say that it probably your insulin doesn't go up and down all the time, it stays a lot more constant, a lot more stable. And then the only other advice I give about weight loss is just try and delete, you know, I don't know, 300 calories from your diet a day. And that over the course of a week, you'll probably lose a pound. And, you know, we we don't think about it, but like if you go to, you know, Chili's and have those delicious rolls that they bring you soaked in butter, you if you eat one of those that you've kind of You know, changed it for the day. You haven't you haven't deleted 300. You probably added 300 calories with that. Yeah,
0: fiber. So fiber is great because fiber helps us feel full, so we can take in fewer calories. The other thing that is really great is protein because protein makes you feel full, and we know a lot about what happens in our gut when in the signals that our gut sends to the brain when you eat protein, but protein it helps you feel full. So when people are kind of getting hungry again quickly, they're probably eating a high carb meal, their insulin is spiking and then they're hungry again soon. So eating a fiber and the protein will help them have kind of a steadier feeling of being full that can carry them through the next meal. So those are really important things and especially for women actually. Many many women do not eat enough protein or enough fiber. So focusing on those things can be a great place to start.
3: So do you think that focusing on like macros rather than calories makes more sense because you can keep it? A... What's a macro? <laughs> I'm a little scared to answer it in front of Florencia because my simplistic of, oh, well, macros are the breakdown of carbs, fat, and protein. Uh, I feel like that is the second grade answer and Florencia can give us the PhD level answer. Do you think doing macros rather than just straight calories makes more sense for women to functionally get where they need to be so that they stay out of the processed food traps and a little bit more into whole foods real real food kind of thing.
0: Again, this is complicated and that's why we kind of work with people to make small changes and try different things and then do different things because there are many ways you can skin the cat basically. So, it is really important to eat enough protein and enough produce and fiber to feel full. And so We do actually have a very basic way that we teach people healthy eating, which is if you think about a plate and you think about three kind of different things you can put on it, protein, we call it produce that form health and it's fruits and veggies and then carbs. So some meals should have a serving of carb and some meals you can kind of do without a serving of carb. And if you think about a plate that's, you know, protein and then fruits and veggies, that's a very healthy plate most of the time. And you can feel really full at the end of that meal. So that's a very basic way that we start to teach people to think about eating, but calories do matter because if you ended up eating, you know, let's say 16 chickens in one day, just to make it, you know, it's still a lean protein, especially if you're eating the chicken breast, but you can eat so many calories that all the excess, we are programmed to survive. So we are programmed to store the excess calories. It's what gets us through the hard times, right? So calories matter too. So you can't Only focus on macros, you have to focus on calories a little bit, but sometimes it's a good place to start. And then if we notice people aren't losing weight, if they're losing weight, awesome. But if they're not losing weight, then we might really have to look more at calories or portions. We try not to do calorie counting. That's so burdensome and so hard to keep up. But when things aren't working, it's one tool that we can bring in to really understand like, well, why aren't we losing weight when we're eating a healthy quality diet? And we might do a little bit more of that.
2: So one thing that the three of us all face is working with our PCOS patients. And they're, I mean, we hear the same story of, I am eating less. I am exercising more than my girlfriend. And they're dropping all the weight and I'm still overweight and they're frustrated. They're burnt out and everything like this. Now, what I'm what I'm first of all wanting to ask so state is like this is this is real. Okay. It is tangible. There is science behind it. Now I understood at one point that actually the mitochondria in patients with PCOS are different than those in other women. Is that true?
0: So PCOS is a very complicated, and I can tell you kind of wearing my endocrine hat that we don't fully understand all of the different aspects, but a lot of it actually is mediated in the brain and the way that it interprets some of these signals and insulin resistance is very connected to mitochondria. And so I feel like PCOS is one of those things that it doesn't have one answer. And we see that the same woman who gains weight starts to really develop symptoms and you know signs and evidence of PCOS, but then at a lower weight doesn't. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt in mid-sentence, but you had mentioned something when you said the brain. You said earlier on that
1: women tend to have a set point like... My set point may be 150, somebody else's set point may
0: be 200. That's right. With that manipulation, are you able to change that set point at all? So that's a great question. And the set point is not something that we can measure, but we know that the body behaves in that way that when you, there are a lot of studies on people in what we call a weight reduced state. So once you lose weight, and we can measure that hormones that cause hunger are much higher. And we can ensure that metabolism is lower because the body is defending that higher weight. So it isn't something that we can measure, but we know that the biology behaves in that way. And so we can help people eat at a lower kind of quantity than their body may want. And we can help people do more exercise, which is really important for increasing metabolism, which is that part of of calories burned and building muscle. Uh, And also, by the way, makes people feel good and it's great for mental health and for many other things. And probably the most effective tool that we have, the most effective tool that we have for changing the set point is bariatric surgery, because that is how people can really come to defend a different weight. And we know that after bariatric surgery, those hunger hormones, for example, are not higher compared to with medical weight loss. But another tool that we have is medications for weight loss. So the the medications for weight loss do, you know, pharmacologically, they change the biochemistry And they give some of the signals to the brain that are natural, but now you're taking a medication that, you know, does it more or does it less. And that seems to really make people feel less hunger, for example. So main driver of how you defend your weight is that you feel hunger. So yes, you go to eat, you do the behavior, but your brain is driving you to do that. And the medications can shift that. So I can talk a little bit more about weight loss medications.
3: So to kind of sum it up. Cause while I think all of us could probably sit here for the next few hours and go, well, <laughs> what about this? And what do you think about this? And what about eating too much? Yeah, and- I've got 10 more questions I want to ask. I think we have Florencia back again. <laughs> I think we may need to have Florencia back again as well, because I've got about 15 questions about, well, what if there's too much? And what if there's too little? And what if you eat more of this? And what if you eat more of that? And what if you really have an aversion of this? And what if you da, 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 da. So that's, that is where my brain has been going for the last half an hour as we've been talking. And it's really only by sheer politeness. That I have not interrupted my and, and <laughs> muted my two partners so that they can't ask questions. So I get all of mine answered. But in the in the spirit of January, if if our patients are thinking about, okay, I really need to make this change, what is a high impact, simple change that they can make as we're thinking about wrapping this up?
0: Great. So first of all, I just want to say that women with PCOS can lose weight. I just want to give that hope and optimism. So whether they have PCOS or not, I would say that a simple change that people can do is focus on eating more fruits and vegetables and more protein. And think about me and my, is it made in a factory or is it made in nature? And try to pick more things that are made in nature and especially snacks. I think snacks can be just such a trap for high refined sugar, high refined carbohydrates. And then for people who, you know, really are struggling and don't seem to be able to do it on their own, just that understanding that this isn't their fault. It's not that they're not trying hard enough. It's probably that their biology, you know, the cards that they were dealt is driving to a higher set point and they may really benefit for you know, from working with us or other professionals who can really sort of dig deep, try a lot of different things, have a much bigger toolbox, and then give them the support and the accountability. And that kind of like stepwise way to do it, that you try something, we see if it works for you. If it doesn't, we regroup and we try something else or we combine different things We combine different tools and sometimes weight loss medications can really be game changers for people, but this is complex in the setting of fertility because most of these medications can't be used in the fertility setting. So sometimes it's the right thing for people to pause. For example, if they're 24 or, you know, 29 to pause and take a break and consider using weight loss medications to really get to a lower weight before they go on to have fertility treatment. And sometimes that's not an option, like when a woman is in her forties. So sometimes we use metformin if they have PCOS that can lower insulin resistance and it can sometimes help people lose weight, or we just work with all the other tools and not consider weight loss medications at all, if that is not safe. But the medications is one of the things that That I think working with a physician can bring to the table that is otherwise not there. But it's certainly not the only thing. We have a lot of expertise on all the different tools and we can really come up with the right combination for the individual.
3: Well, thank you so much. We are so appreciative that you came to join us today. And for our listeners, um, you've been listening to Dr. Florencia Helperin and she is the CMO at Form Health. So if this is something that is near and dear to your heart or potentially near and dear to your doctor's heart for you, definitely check them out and see how they can kind of help you on this journey because they are very uniquely qualified to do so. So thank you so much, Florencia. We are very appreciative of you hanging out with us today.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me.
3: And to our audience, thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review in iTunes. We would love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on by, leave us a like or a follow and say hello.
1: And you can also visit us at Uncensored to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment, or even leave us an episode idea. Don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you.
2: As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own
3: physician. All right, we'll see you soon. Bye. 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 We want to thank Ovation Fertility for sponsoring today's podcast. On the road to parenthood, many of our listeners find themselves in need of fertility testing, IVF, and other related services such as egg donation, genetic testing, or gestational surrogacy. Ovation is a one-stop shop for services that many people may need as they go through fertility care. You can learn more about Ovation services for hopeful parents at OvationFertility.com.